This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, civil rights activist and educator Erica Huggins is joined in conversation by CIIS professor and restorative justice expert Sonia Shah. The conversation, which explores Erica's time in the Black Panthers and the role of meditation during her prison sentence, was recorded on September 8 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. The event was a collaboration with Bioneers and the National Bioneers Conference. Learn more at Bioneers.org. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. The way that I can introduce Erica is actually through a story of one of the first times that I met her. She, um, there was a, there's a group at San Quentin called the Restorative Justice Roundtable. And they've been meeting, I don't know, for 10 years, self-organized as a group of incarcerated men, really committed to understanding restorative justice from the inside. And they uh, really wanted to bring Erica inside. And what was very special about that is is that the person who was convicted of conspiracy to murder uh, Erica's husband, uh, Watani Steiner, was inside San Quentin, and they had gone through a whole process to do a restorative dialogue. And so my first real personal introduction to this beautiful woman was helping to organize a roundtable between Watani and Erica in front of, I don't know, 200, 300 incarcerated men inside San Quentin, in which we were also able to bring Erica's son Um, who is just an extraordinary poet. Um, And the room was a magnetic field of just uh, enraptured sort of experience of uh, Watani, Erica, and other men sort of sharing their experiences. So um, I don't have to say much else because we're just really lucky to have Erica. We kind of snagged her. You know, we're lucky to snag her because of the Bioneers folks. And what we really want to do here... um, is to drop into our hearts and to stay out of this very cerebral way that we could be engaging with issues of justice, with issues of spirituality, with issues of oppression, uh, with issues of just personal story, and to really try to feel more into our hearts. This is, we were just talking about how this is the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, so she's like booked solid. Um, and um, so, you know, this is a 50, 60 year trajectory span of your life experience. And I'm just wondering if you want to bring us into it. Well, where do I begin, Sonia? <laughs> and thank you for, for the story. You took me back to San Quentin and all the men in blue. And some of them are, are out now. Mm-hmm. One thing that I want to say to set a tone of a sort is that when we come together to talk about justice, social justice, restoring justice, um, over incarceration, any of these things, racism, poverty, we get really quiet and our our shoulders go up around our ears. 
So relax. Just relax. Um, I think back to a time when I didn't know so many things. And then one day someone said, well, if you, what you don't know, think about all the things you get to know. There's something in societies um, in general that tells us we should know everything. That's not true. How on earth, how could that be? So it was in a small prison cell that I began to know myself really beyond the identities that sort of helped me to navigate the world. I'm a woman. I'm an African-American person. At the time I was incarcerated, I was a, a new mother. Um, and that's a story in and of itself. I don't know whether we'll go into that story, but when I was incarcerated, my daughter was three months old. And my husband had just been killed. And so I knew that I needed to know more about me in order to face life. Because I knew I wasn't going to die. I felt like I would. I felt like my heart was in little shattered bits. But I knew I wasn't meant to die. I knew I was meant to live. And so I had this idea. And the idea was that I should learn to meditate. I don't know where it came from. And so I did, I sat quietly. And I still do every morning. Now that isn't because somebody told me that's what I ought to do. It's because it is the anchor of my life. It allows me to be present and lighthearted in the face of amazing challenge as that time was then in 1969. I was really young. And I thought I'd stay there for the rest of my life. So I thought, okay, I'll make the best of it. And when I began to meditate in that cell and later in solitary confinement, I recognized that there is a power within me and within every single human being. Nobody's born without it. That is infinite. And it is unfailing, and it is unchanging, and it is timeless. So since I was doing time, recognizing the timelessness of my own self was important. It was a crazy time. A time when I could have been killed at any moment while incarcerated, not to mention on the way to the courthouse for trial, or during the trial, and so on. So that began a new level of my inner journey then, in my early 20s. 
And I recognize something else that there was a man who killed John Huggins, my husband, but he wasn't the murderer. That all of us are responsible for our world and the way that it shows the way that it's showing itself right now, every single one of us. So we can be upset when we hear the news or see the news or read the news and blame. Or we can turn our attention here where the real work is to be done. And for many of you, I'm assuming you've already begun that work. What is it? Because a lot of times I hear people say, well, you know, the work is. It's just our lives. It's our clearing our hearts so we can be present with one another. Present. Regardless of how we look, how we talk, how we've been educated or not. We can all show up for one another. And we don't do that enough. Do we? So when I, I, I kept wanting to know how John was killed at UCLA in broad daylight on January 17, 1969, how did that happen? What was the orchestration of that? One man with a gun? No. Um, a police department? No. What attracted that? How did that happen? And I wanted to ask questions of the people who were there that day, but I couldn't find them. And so then later in time, much later, four decades later, I was able to connect with Watani Steiner, who was trying on the other side of the world to connect with me. We were both thinking of one another. He, because he was a father, and me with a child who had no father. And he'd been there that day. So eventually, we were able to talk about what happened. And this was a level of healing I cannot describe. I could try, but it wouldn't really do it justice. To talk with the person who was the last person to see, my friend, who is also my husband, John Huggins, alive. So the way that I came to restorative justice is because I so wanted to understand what happened that day with John Huggins and Bunchy Carter, but I also wanted to know uh, how this conversation could happen around the globe with everyone, not just incarcerated people, but how can we prevent incarceration? And there were people who had answers to those questions, like Banya Davis of Our Joy in Oakland, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, for our youth. Um, 
there were all kinds of people, and a world opened up for me because I've always known that a prison does not help anyone. Rehabilitation in a prison is a joke. Restoring justice is not a joke because it starts with a person's heart and it moves out, whether they're able to be released from a carceral site or not. And there's a way that many of us live in our own carceral sites, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, as the victims of our own thinking and um, our own barriers. But the truth is that there are millions of people who are literally physically incarcerated and they are black and brown. Yeah, 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 we know that, Erica. But think about it for a second. If I asked, if I picked out people in this room and said, how many people do you know who are incarcerated and how many of them are very close to you? Those people would probably say at least five, maybe three. When I teach at a school that is predominantly black and brown, everybody in the room raises their hand when I say that. So this is something for all of us to think about, that we live in a country that incarcerates more human beings than any other country in the world. In the world, in the world. So my first connection with Bioneers was coming last year with Banya Davis and some of the students that our joy serves who were talking about how restorative justice prevented their incarceration or helped them once they were free of the juvenile prisons. It was the most touching thing. I, I, it was so touching. And I realized that many of the people who came to us after in that audience knew nothing about this. And that's unfortunate. So everywhere I can go to talk about what is needed, I will. Um, and I want to stop there for a minute because I didn't really talk about my life so much as something that's really important to me. Um, so I'm wondering um, if... Um, you know, there's, there's this, there, it feels like there are these so many experiences that lead up to the moment um, where we have those moments of insight around our inner transformation and kind of like, whoa, you know, this is what I should be doing or this is what I meant to be doing. And you described that sort of sitting in a cell and coming to that moment. And so I was wondering if you could just take us back a little bit into um, what brought you into the Black Panther movement and what it was like at that time for you to be um, leading the LH or one of the leaders of the LA chapter, the New Haven chapter. Just what it was like? What was the climate like? What was the feeling like? It was like right now. <laughs> With far less awareness. Thank goodness there is more awareness. 
Thank goodness for Black Lives Matter. Thank goodness. They are such amazing people. If you are ever able to hear them speak, any of them, wherever they are, please rush, rush, rush there. Um, I feel honored every time I'm in the presence of someone who is really representing their networks because they are fully in their hearts. They do not, as my mother would say, bite their lip about the truth. They say it unapologetically. Why should we apologize for continual harm? And we're all trained in decorating the truth. So thank goodness for them, because that's what we did then. Um, however, I think that when you called it a dangerous time, it was very dangerous, because we were speaking out, and this had never been done before, not in this way. Mm-hmm. We said, you know, no is in the English language. Okay, so no, you cannot kick in our doors and rummage through our lives. No, you can't pull us out of a car and beat us. No, you can't say that it's not okay for us to defend ourselves. And I grew up where my mother was raised with her 10 brothers and sisters, a farm without running water, and out an outhouse. You know what an outhouse is? Yeah, I do. do. You know what an outhouse is? <laughs> oh, come on. If you don't, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a porta potty. Mm-hmm. No, it's an outhouse. Anyway, um, so she grew up on a farm. Her her father was a tobacco farmer. Mm-hmm. Why am I telling you this? Because When I say farm, we think of farms today. No crosses were burned on the lawn across from her father's farm. Her father was, uh, died when he was 75 and was called boy until the day he died. Mm. But how do we do that now? There are ways in which we do that. Isn't it true? Think about it. Think about any one of the interactions you've had in the last month, week, day, where you've identified someone in a way that came from decades of demeaning stereotypes. We're quick to respond when it happens to us personally. But how are we thinking? This is something I did in prison. I would notice my thoughts. It's like, what? Where'd you get that, Erica? I'd say to myself, because it was just me in the cell. (laughs) How did you wait? All... Blank, blank, people are what? So 
I had nothing but time, and I used it. Now I don't have so much time that I can put to reflection, but it's a habit to reflect on what I'm thinking, not what somebody else is thinking. What am I thinking? What am I bringing to the interaction or the conversation? So anyway, my mother would tell me stories about growing up on this farm. And I, and I would tell her things like, no, you, no, that didn't happen. See, I'd be dead if, if I'd grown up in, in Ville, North Carolina. They'd have killed me. And she'd say, no, sugar, they wouldn't have killed you because you wouldn't have done it. You'd have just gone right along with what, in order to live, you, you would have gone along like I had to do. But you don't live there. You live here in this time. And she was talking to me when I was a young teenager and thought I knew something. <laughs> and, um, and she said, there's something that you can do. She kept telling me that. So, but of course, when I went to the March on Washington in 1963 and I was 15, she said, I told you you could do something, but I didn't mean you could go out there and, and be in harm's way. <laughs> and then when I joined the Black Panther Party for self-defense, which was its original name, um, she was frightened and angry because she thought I'd be killed. And she was, she was on to something. And, but I remember the church folks that would go into... The church, the pastors, the deacons who would come to church with a Bible and a gun. Why? Because they were crazy? No, because they were protecting themselves from harm. They had to because their houses were being firebombed or set on fire or they were being shot at. Their wives and daughters were being raped. So it was common in that part of North Carolina to think about defending oneself. So when I heard about the Black Panther Party, I was immediately attracted to it because self-defense is feeding children. Self-defense is providing health care if it doesn't exist, and it didn't, and it still doesn't on some level. Self-defense is making a safe way for teens to grow up and for seniors to get from one place to the other. So the Black Panther Party did all of these things or said it would do all of these things when I first joined that really touched my heart. And furthermore, what I found out when I did a little bit of inquiring about it is that it wasn't just about Black people. We were all black, but we were about the world. And that drew me too. So I left Lincoln University where I was studying and um, in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and drove across the country to join the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. It was that strong a pull. Mm -hmm. And... And many of us did. 
And many of us are gathering in Oakland to talk about what drew us Mm -hmm. to the movement. Mm -hmm. And it was a human rights movement. It wasn't just civil rights. Malcolm X, that was his wave. He said, civil rights are the rights that you do but under the law. Mm -hmm. Human rights are the rights you do by your birth. That's so beautiful. And I don't think we pay enough tribute to people like Malcolm X because he started a set of conversations that were unnerving to European Americans. But once he returned from Mecca, he was no joke and was working with Martin Luther King. And where are they both? What happened? You can probably answer that question. Why are they both gone? Or why were they both gone close in time? So the Black Panther Party represented a community upliftment for me. And so where we ended was Los Angeles, John and I ended up in Los Angeles. And it wasn't a big deal. You just walked in the office and said, I want to join the Black Panther Party. Okay, can you answer phones? Yes. Can you cook a meal? Yes. Can you, can you sell party newspapers? Yes. And it wasn't gendered at all. I wasn't asked to cook and John was asked to do so. Everybody did everything. With the awareness that the FBI was so after us that we could die at any moment. We didn't always talk about it, though, until it was time to pull out the black dress and go to a funeral. But we just served the people, as we said, body and soul. So all of that attracted me to it and and made me stay. And... um, And I always along the way knew that the generation, the young generation then, the children then, and the young people then deserved us to step up and step out. And I still feel that way. I feel that my generation owes it to young people to step up and step out instead of complaining and whining, not everybody, just some. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we can all mentor a young person. We have so much to offer if we're willing to um, look at history straight in the face. So there you were in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. you and John, and you were cooking meals, and you were answering phones. Yes. And um, there's this thing that happens that's pretty significant on the steps of the UCLA campus. And um, your husband is murdered. Mm -hmm. And somehow you become incarcerated. Mm -hmm. That's that's three months later. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And let me tell you something else, too. We also had, there's an, there was, it was a, 
a freeform organization called Friends of the Panthers. The Friends of the Panthers were really wealthy, uh, young, white entertainment folks in Los Angeles. And um, I remember going and speaking at events at these big, beautiful houses. Um, they were so amazing. You could see the whole Los Angeles skyline from one window in one of these homes. I'd never seen anything like this. And I remember saying to somebody, between eating all the food I could find because I was pregnant, I was big and pregnant. Um, <laughs> people live like this? Because um, I grew up in D.C. I, I don't remember going to any. There were houses like that in D.C. as well, but I never knew about them. I just lived in the little place where I lived. But those people were such good people. They brought us to speak so they could raise thousands of dollars for court cases for party members because we were always being arrested. Mm. We were always being charged with something really ridiculous and nebulous mm -hmm. and then set free, but then court, court costs were still there. And there were all the, all the lawyers that helped with the Black Panther Party, by the way, worked pro bono, all of them, all of them. What great people. And we'll come back to this later, but I'm saying this because it's so important to think of yourself as an ally. If you can't think of yourself as a friend, then be an ally and show up wherever you are in the skin you're in with the people that you're with. It's so important to think of yourself that way. And that's what they did. Mm -hmm. And the reason I remember those, those events where I would go to speak is because they had such good food and I was so <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, you know, when you're talking back to the outhouse and L.A. and the early just days, um, you know, you're really painting a picture of a time um, right. And the danger, the survival of that time. I wake up every morning grateful to be alive. I don't know how I'm alive mm -hmm. when I really think about it. Alive and not only that, able to finish sentences. Mm -hmm. Because some of my friends are not so able. Mm -hmm. Because it was absolutely traumatic. Mm -hmm. We lived in war. Mm -hmm. And so, John Huggins became the friend of the leader of the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party, Al Prentice Bunchy Carter. And Bunchy was um, a phenomenal man. And I have to say, um, I don't know how he came to be, except that he was unique um, among his peers. He was self-educated in prison and a master of African as well as African-American history. I learned things from Bunchy that I'd never learned in my years in college about Africa. Mm. Um, 
But John and Bungie were an unlikely friendship, one coming from New Haven, Connecticut, from a family that was quite academic, and Bungie coming from South Central Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But you see, it doesn't matter what our external identities are. If we choose to get to know one another, then we can. So um, there was something called the High Potential Program at UCLA. And it was one of those early um, educational opportunity programs and affirmative action, pre-affirmative action, actually. And um, they both became students through the High Potential Program. Why? Because they were serious about getting a college degree, not really, but because they were supporting the students on the campus the Black Panther Party, by the way, coined the concept, created the concept of the student union, mm. starting with the black student unions. Yes. The Black Panther Party was responsible for uh, a lot of things, including changing language mm -hmm. and changing appearance. Um, it was a good day when, when the homecoming queens at various proms, including Howard University, showed up with big old <laughs> afros. This was new mm -hmm. in the 60s mm -hmm. because you're supposed to straighten your hair if you're a respectable mm -hmm. person. So back to UCLA, they became students. They were working with the black students. And it was well known that by this time that the FBI was after us. We didn't know its name, the, the inside clandestine organization within the organization, COINTELPRO. We didn't know about it then, but we knew it was the FBI because they infiltrated every organization that moved, every single one. And um, long story short, they orchestrated um, using two or three young black men they orchestrated an argument and then the instant deaths of John and Bunchy. And so there was a funeral for Bunchy in Los Angeles and almost simultaneously within that week, um, one for John Huggins in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where he was from. So I took a train across the country with my three-week-old daughter, and I'm glad I had that time on the train. And got to New Haven and went to the funeral, and then the Yale students and some members of the black community there asked me to stay and start a chapter, and I did. And then three months later, because of COINTELPRO, um, I was arrested conspiracy with the intent to commit murder, mm -hmm. along with Bobby Seal, mm -hmm. who's celebrating his 80th birthday mm -hmm. in October. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there'll be a big party for him. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that's what happened. Mm -hmm. That's how I became incarcerated. You never know how a horrendous set of events can also become um, so 
pivotal in your life that you grow uh, exponentially. Like every part of me was growing when I was in prison. And I was able to laugh a lot. I was able to recognize um, my own lightheartedness. Um, I was isolated for the first 14 months because I was considered um, a bad influence on the other women. (laughs) Who talked to me anyway, wrote me notes, slid stuff under the door. They knew they'd get in trouble if they did, and they did. Many of them were isolated for talking to me. But isn't that ridiculous? Mm -hmm. That my my words were considered contraband. And there are words that are still considered contraband. Mm -hmm. So um, the trial was six months, and the jury had no evidence. But the jury hung twice. Mm. And then the judge said, let them go. Mm. And so I did. Mm. But I came out with a completely new sense of myself and a definite sense that prisons do nothing to help anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, it provided me a monastic cell, but I think I could go to a monastery mm-hmm. if I, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so I. It, it, was, um, it was meant to be that way in my life. And, but as a result of that, I, I, I was not able to keep the bond that I formed with my baby daughter. And she's fine. She's wonderful. She has two children. But we're more like big sister and little sister mm-hmm. because there's nothing that I can do to go back and change that, mm-hmm. you know? I'm really aware of it, that though her father was killed and I was incarcerated and we didn't intend either thing, she was abandoned. I face it, um, and I do the best I can with that. And that helps to restore justice. You know, it's not, those two words are not just a, a, a cause. So fast forwarding to that and moving into the now Mm. um, and moving into, I mean, one of the things that Erica and I talked about getting ready for this was just, there's so many ways in which people use the word restorative justice and restoring justice. And, you know, what does that really mean? And where does it really start? And where does it come from? Um, And so I'm wondering if you would speak a little bit to that. Well, I was curious. Um, one of the other first times that you and I met was at a restorative justice conference mm-hmm. in Toledo, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And it was the fourth year of so. that conference, and it was the first time. It still blows my mind. It was the first time that race had ever been talked about in that conference. I was like, what? <laughs> 
And it was mostly focused on the um, over-incarceration and the prison population as it exists, which has gotten bigger and bigger over the years. But I was so amazed that no one had ever given a nudge to make that be the central theme from the beginning. You following me here? And I know that it was like mind-boggling to you as well. Definitely. I kept checking in with people. Is this really the first time? <laughs> and it was really difficult. It was really difficult for people. And then I realized that the conversation has to be different and deeper. Indigenous principles form what we call restorative justice. As a matter of fact, the history, and our friend Sujata taught me this, the history of the restorative justice movements in the United States came from a man who took the principles from indigenous Canadians, tribal peoples. He didn't steal them. They were there to be used. They're, that is the way... That's the way we are, indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Just, here, take this. I'll show you how to grow some rice. I'll show you how to plant some corn. But at any rate, um, I, no one knew that. As soon as I knew it, I started telling everybody I could tell because the principles also remind me of African principles for healing. And... Asian principles for healing. Um, sitting in circle with a talking piece is so familiar to me. Um, I don't know, maybe the residuals of Africa in the Baptist church that my mother grew up in. I don't know. But I knew it wasn't something that created itself in the United States in the Midwest. <laughs> Which is where restorative justice became prominent as a movement for incarcerated people. So there also, there were many people talking about restorative justice practices and principles in the schools and in community as a way to prevent uh, incarceration. And that, at that point in that conference, I realized that there need to be restorative justice circles that talk about race. The particular conference that Eric was talking about is a, it's like a classic divide between people who set up conferences that come up, that come from really academic frameworks and people who are doing like real restorative justice practices on the ground. And so the conference was very much like, this is theoretically what it looks like. You know, and then there was the rest of us that were like, well, this is actually what you do. Um, and, um, and so I think we were both there and it was the first time the practitioners were kind of like, yeah, no, you know, we're not, this is not what we're doing anymore. We're doing something different. Um, and I mean, there's two things I just want to say to kind of to round out what Erica said around restorative justice. One is that people think of it as like this foreign thing that like happens out there with like people that like committed harm out there somewhere and related to incarceration. But really, it's really about bringing it completely home 
And I do harm all the time, constantly, mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. day probably, and every three times a day. Um, and I use it in my family. Um, one of the most meaningful moments for me recently, a few months ago, uh, I was coming back from a interview for a fellowship and uh, I got these frantic messages on my phone um, and I was laid over in Denver and I checked my message with my ex-husband calling saying, my daughter's name is Sunam, her best friend's name is Isabel and they're 10. And he goes, so Isabel's mother just called me and says she doesn't want to play with Sunam anymore because your daughter's mean. And I don't know what to do right now. And I said, don't do anything at all. Tell Sandy, the mom, not to do anything. You don't do anything. I don't trust either of you. I don't trust myself. We're terrible at this. We all intervene when kids are having problems. These girls are 10. Welcome to the wonderful world of women tearing each other apart. And they're there. This is the initiation of um, internalized tearing you down because of your gender. And this was my, my best friend is the woman we were talking about, Sujata. I was talking to her. So I said, don't do anything. We're going to have them do a circle, an RJ circle. Um, just Isabel and Sunam, no parents, none allowed, and one adult that they trust who was Sujata. They both have known her since they were, you know, two, one, three years old. So I called Sujata on the phone. And I said, okay, this is what's going down here right now. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we got to do this circle. We got to do it tomorrow. You know, bring them over. It's fine. Drop them off. And we're not talking about it. Like, you guys can't come, right? And in the middle of that conversation, this was a fellowship that she actually had a few years ago that I was applying for. Then some stuff was coming up for her. I'm going to get emotional around um, what if now you become the one that they go to to ask for some things as opposed to me. So we got into this conversation about how women are always fighting to be number one in the harem. When do you think that'll ever end? You know, what does it mean to always be tearing? I've known this woman for 25 years. She's my best friend, right? And we're getting into this harem conversation, right? Like, why do women tear each other down? What does it mean to be utterly committed to each other in the face of... um, all of these systems and processes that want to, and the nonprofit world being absolutely the worst at tearing people apart internally, particularly people of color and particularly women. We fight to be the ones to be seen and known. And this is the conversation I'm having in Denver on the phone. This is our prep call for my daughter's circle, Hmm. okay? And I'm like, I gotta get off the phone. I'm getting on the plane. And she said, just promise me one thing. And I said, what? She said, promise me we will always work it through no matter what. And I said, oh, yeah, I promise you that. And to this day, it keeps happening. Every two days, something else happens where it is this fast that something could happen and tear us apart. Um, And it's all of those structures that are out there that's saying divide, 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 right? And the incredible commitment it takes to stay close. The point being that she did the circle, they're friends again, and they figured out that they have very different ways of thinking about things, right? But I mean, the point is many, but the the point about restorative justice is that it's really not about stuff out there. It's about the stuff that we do inside here. Um, and And it's directly linked 
to um, undermining structures, right? So this thing that we're hearing about that's not, is not really what we're talking about. The second little story I'll tell you is I was at another conference in Virginia that was the next restorative justice conference, and I did a session about how do we integrate structural harm within the restorative justice movement. And this beautiful teacher, Jenny Escobar, in L.A., stood up and told this story about a boy that she works with. And she said, what is the difference between we go and we do these circles for these youth in school so that they don't, uh, you know, they don't get disciplined, you know, and the teachers feel good. If we're just doing that, that's, that's, you know, that's not restorative justice. That has to be grounded in a liberatory framework. That has to be grounded in the notion that you are trying to upset the entire school system that has a predetermined thinking that this boy is problematic, is ADHD, mm-hmm. is going to do harm to other kids. So she's like, there's a big paradigm shift in the RJ movement from thinking we're just doing this little intervention to the intervention that is deeply rooted in uprooting a system and a liberatory framework. So those are the two RJ stories that I really want people to hold as the possibility of the future of that movement. Because every movement is flawed when we first when it first starts out, right? It's like, well, we're all building the plane while well, flying it, trying to figure it out. Um, but there are ways in which folks in the movement are trying to really see the connection to other movements. So, And what you're saying that. is that the folks doing it are checking themselves. Yes. Taking that little broom and sweeping it around in their hearts. Yeah. That's really key. Mm-hmm. And if I have anything to say about the human rights movement that I was a part of in the 60s, 70s, and so on, it would be that we didn't have a spiritual container for all of our trauma and pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was a closet meditator. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you meditate, Erica? How's that serving the people? <laughs> so I just didn't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm because it was seen as counter to something. But I knew that it kept me sane and grounded and able to be present for the next challenge. Mm -hmm. And some of those same people have come to that understanding on their own. But what you said is so important. Your conversation with your best friend actually impacted the conversation that your friend had with your daughter and her best friend. So everything that we do is connected to everything that we do and all the people that we are, that we even have to see, like all of you, we're all connected. And and we lose track of that Mm -hmm. unless we are continually mindful. Mm -hmm. So there's a way that you've been weaving in this last hour, um, the grounding, the grounded sense of spirituality and meditation as a way, as something that sustained you. Yeah. And, and then you talked a little bit about just sort of coming to the present, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement and have had some intersections with talking about sustainability of activism. So I guess Mm -hmm. the question I have for you is about what sustains activism how do we sustain it 
um, in this generation without the um, burning out? What do we do when we're moving from one action to the next, to the next, to the next? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm reminded of um, a young woman who came to the place where I meditate. A friend brought her. And, um, and she, as she was leaving the door, she had big tears in her eyes. She's part of Black Lives Matter. And she said, I so needed this. We just keep going and going and going. And I saw in her 20-something face my own self because we just kept going and going and going with nothing to recharge our little batteries. And I said, you needed it, now what will you do? She said, I want to do this some more. Can, can we do this together? I said, sure, what are you thinking? She said, well, activists need to just sit still. And I go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, bring me up. And so she did. And she, by that time, organized 12 young activists who came together. First, it was going to be at someone's house. And then it was, it was shifted. So they came to a place of meditation to meditate together. And they shared the most profound um, understandings of the depth of love in their hearts and the concern for humanity that isn't a sentence full of rhetoric mm -hmm. um, and their wishes for the children of the world. It was one of the most touching um, environments after sitting for meditation that I've ever been in. Mm. Because these are people who know what the bridge is and were willing to walk across it. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe they had some misgivings, a couple of them when they came in. Mm -hmm. But all of that sort of goes away when you sit still and you honor your own deep abiding self mm -hmm. it, it's it's natural you can't help it it's how we human beings are put together um, and then we're taught to revere these external identities more than the deepest one mm -hmm. children know they have it babies know they have it and then all of the layers of stuff happen. So sitting quietly like moves the layers slowly but surely. So I think of that story and um, I think it's important even if you don't sit quietly at any point during the day that we take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Activists don't eat right. We don't sleep. We don't we aren't kind to one another unless we're mindful of it. So there needs to be something that holds us accountable for the love we need to give to ourselves in order to continue to do the work. On Southwest, they say, 
<laughs> put the thing on you before you try to help the other person. Okay. Yeah. I boogered up the Southwest thing, but mm-hmm. <laughs> we all understand you can't give to somebody else what you, what you are not giving to yourself, mm-hmm. what you're not allowing for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, and it doesn't, it's not counter to anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not counter. Mm-hmm. It's a central focal part of working with humans is to be human, Mm -hmm. to eat basic food, um, to get a little bit of sleep, to reflect at the end of the day or the beginning of the morning. And and I think that we're taught to think that, oh, that's going to take too much time. But have you ever been in a meeting of activists? (laughs) How many hours does that take? So um, meetings could start differently. Meetings could start and end with people. Classes could start and end with people sitting quietly. There are all kinds of ways we can do this. And we can also let go of our old stories. We have backpacks full of old stories that we haven't, pulled out of the backpack to look at them to see if we want to keep carrying them. Mm-hmm. But we carry them. Like, and, and it makes for armor. And we don't need them. How do I know that? Because I had a backpack full of them. We don't need them. So we take care of ourselves because we want to continue to care for the world. And it's really, really not fun if we don't. Mm -hmm. It it isn't fun for us. It's not healthy. And it certainly isn't helpful or healthy to the people around us. Mm -hmm. And so what's so interesting is, you know, there's this piece about what sustains the justice worker, the cultural worker, the activist in themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's this piece about what we all need to be doing to really have an authentic relationship to understanding power and privilege and oppression. Mm -hmm. So there's like two works happening at the same time. Well, of course. Of course. So I have privilege. (laughs) I have privilege. Mm -hmm. I share about my mother. Mm -hmm. She was legally blind for the last good portion of her life. Um, And I had the privilege of sight. And when she lost her long-term memory and her short-term memory after a small stroke, I would show her, I became her eyes and also her ability to cognize when it was time to eat. Mama, your chicken's at 12 o'clock and your green beans are at 3 and your bread's at six, and your potatoes or whatever it was at nine. And she goes, sugar, I don't want you ever to take your sight for granted or anything else you got. You got your mind. I say, yes, mama, I, I really, I really am grateful for all that I have. And I thought about my mother telling me that, and I was thinking about how people get 
the panties and boxers all in a wad because <laughs> they have skin privilege, which I also do have. There are people right in this room that wouldn't get allowed into a room or a decision-making table because of their skin, mm -hmm. the, the shade of their skin. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe me, think about Brazil where there are at least 23 different words for shades of color, of blackness. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm aware that I could be appreciated in a way that I didn't ask for, that I didn't earn. Mm -hmm. So what's the big whoop when we look at white privilege and male privilege? Mm -hmm. It is what it is. What we do with it is so important. Mm -hmm. Have a pity party about it? No. Be grateful that you have the privilege and figure out how to use it real quick, right now, because our world is in dire straits. And, you know, when we were having this conversation earlier, we were talking about these, like, really cerebral, formulaic ways mm -hmm. that people come at um, oppression Mm -hmm. or doing the work. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that. What is the work? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be an ally? You know, what are ways that we stay trapped, you know, in certain formulas? Are you asking me a question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, folks, what are the ways we stay trapped in our white privilege, our male privilege, our skin privilege, our... Let's not go gender for now. Let's just stay with, let's stay with this a minute. Can we do that? So we don't derail the train. My favorite one that came up in that conference was, but I'm part Native American. And I'm chuckling to myself as I hear that. And I go, so am I. But what does that have to do with the bigger picture of what we're talking about? I, one thing that I know I do is that, or that I feel like happens inside of me, is that when someone says, you know, is pointing out a way that I might have harmed them, and then I'm all like, but you don't know me, you don't understand, you don't, oh. if you only knew, like, what I'm going through right now and what my life history has been, you know, this is the internal monologue going in my head, right? And so I sit a lot. And coming back to the meditation, coming back for the to the like the like the I would call it like a sense of self inquiry and self reflection and like mm -hmm. a critical self reflection, which can also sometimes be mindfulness, right? There, like there's one way like in the spiritual framework of sitting and observing oneself, right? And then there's also um, the observing one's actions and like how they're impacting others. And there's a beautiful relationship there. So when I do that with myself. I think a lot about, well, I'm having a story here about how I'm not being seen um, or I'm not being seen in the world in a certain kind of way. And now it's playing it, it out on this other person, right? But really, I'm also not seeing them and that they're pointing out to me right now that I did something that was um, careless, that wasn't seeing them. And I need to stop with my story. Um, and I need to start seeing what's happening in front of me. And like this really brutal process of like 
pulling it apart and not minimizing my actions, you know, um, in those moments. So. And not tearing yourself down. Yes, lots of self. That's the other thing. Forgiveness there. Yeah. 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 Lots of self-forgiveness. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Erica. My pleasure. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.